Well, as we come to the word of God this morning, let's bow together in a word of prayer. Oh God in heaven, we do ask as we open your holy word that you would please give us reverent hearts for us to bow before the word of heaven, for us to recognize the supreme authority that it holds over our lives. And may you help us to see Christ, that we might more fully give our lives to him. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as this season shows us, people have some funny responses to Christmas. You know, there's people that respond to this holiday in different ways. Uh, There are those over-decorators, and maybe you are one of them, or you live with one of them. Uh, They go all out. They don't want to be overdone by anybody. Uh, Any bit of space on their house or in their front lawn uh, is filled with something that lights up. It doesn't matter what it is, we're going to plug it in because we've got room. Uh, And if you go inside their house, every nook and cranny is filled the same way. They have all the Christmas stuff that has been waiting in the attic and now uh, gets put out. Those are the over-decorators. There's also the year-rounders. And again, we might have some of them here in our midst. Those, you know who you are. Uh, You don't see Christmas as a season, but as a way of life. Um, You you live with Christmas lights up year-round. You are always having Christmas music on in the car or wherever else, and no doubt the people around you know who you are and have tried to convince you to change your ways. There's also the half-hearted ones, right? The ones that go, well, it is Christmas. I guess it should put some effort towards it. And so they put one blow-up Santa in the front yard and they call it good, right? And they're just like, well, uh, I guess I'll join in. Or they just stick a wreath on, on their door and think they're, they're fine. And of course, there's the Scrooges, right? The people that say, bah humbug, and refuse to recognize that there's any difference between December and any other month of the year. In fact, they often wear it as a badge of honor to be as anti-Christmas as they can be. And with Christmas becoming such a a phenomenon in our culture, it's it's a a reason why there's so many strong reactions to it. And while it's amusing, certainly, to look around and to see how we and our neighbors respond to this holiday, it's far more important to consider how we respond to the person at the center of the holiday, and that is Jesus Christ. It's the celebration of His birth, in fact, that has sparked all of the festivities and that has built up this great commercialized thing that we know as Christmas and the Christmas season. And yet, there's people all over the world that celebrate Christmas, and yet they never come face to face with Christ. They see Christmas trees, and they sing Christmas songs, and they watch the Christmas specials, and they wear the ugly Christmas sweaters, and they have a great time, but it simply becomes a time for them to enjoy themselves, and they never, ever come face to face with with Christ. In fact, they try to ignore the one born king. Oh, they might put a little crush on their mantle. They might put a nativity scene somewhere in their house and think it's cute and sweet. But they don't really seek to grapple with who it is that was born in that manger 2,000 years ago. And yet, as millions of people try to ignore that baby in a manger, they will come face to face with him someday if it's not today. He will either be the king who saves them or the king who judges them. But either way, all will come face to face with the king of kings and lord of lords. This morning, we're going to look at some of these responses to the king. And we're going to see them in Matthew chapter 2. And so I invite you to turn in your personal copy of God's word to Matthew chapter 2. This is the passage The pastor Art read for us earlier, and particularly 
passage that we know of the coming of the wise men, a classic part of the Christmas story, those who come bearing gifts to Christ. But in this passage, particularly in chapter 2, Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 18, we're going to see three responses to the birth of Christ the King on that first Christmas. On that first Christmas, three different responses. And we're going to see that these, these responses that were exhibited there on that first Christmas are really some of the same responses that we see today to Jesus and to the true meaning of Christmas. And the question for us all is how will we respond to Christ? What is our response going to be? And so let's begin by looking at the first response that this text shows us of the first response to Christ on that first Christmas. And that is the response of apathy. Apathy. And we'll see this in verses 1 through 6. Look at the text with me. It says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Well, the first response that we're going to see this morning comes from the religious leaders in Jerusalem. But before we can get to their response, we need to set the scene as the text does, leading up to these religious leaders. Verse 1 begins by telling us that this takes place after Jesus was born in Bethlehem. So the Christ child has already been born, as was recounted at the end of chapter 1 that Pastor Art read for us earlier. And after he was born, it says that some wise men came to Jerusalem to visit King Herod. This is in the days of Herod the king, and they come from the east. And so we need to ask ourselves, who are these wise men, and what are they doing in Jerusalem? Now, in terms of their identity, uh, there seems to, what seems to be certain is that they were uh, this mixture of astronomers studying the stars, astrologers seeking to find meaning from the stars, and philosophers thinking about uh, religious texts and whatnot. It seems that they studied the stars and tried to discern their meaning. And as you know, they've been traditionally pictured as three kings, right? We three kings of Orient are bearing gifts we traverse so far. You know the song. But their text gives us no indication that there were only three men. In fact, there could have been two. We know there was plural, so there's at least two. We don't know exactly how many there were. The three often comes from the three gifts that were given to the Christ child. One uh, ancient commentator said that there was 14. But again, it just goes to show we don't really know how many, and there could have been many, two or more. We also, it seems fairly clear that scholars agree today that they weren't kings. The idea that they were kings comes from a, a conflation, a bringing together of an Old Testament text along with this text that talks about kings bringing gifts from afar, and uh, they seem to put that together and go, oh, this must have been what that's talking about, and therefore these are kings. But the indication from uh, this, these, uh, these wise men, or the word magi, and the, the study of that word does not point to being royalty, but rather being uh, religious or uh, philosophizers. But the question remains where they came from. What was their country of origin? There's two, really two possibilities, and one that you'll probably most commonly hear is that they came from the Far East, from uh, modern-day Iraq or Iran. And in favor of this option are the, the following considerations. Now, if you think about the Old Testament and the nation of Israel, they were sent into exile because of their disobedience. And what's 
called the Babylonian exile, right? And they were sent off to Babylon. And so you have this great contingent of, of Jews that were then sent over to that part of the world. And they, they were told to live there and to, and to have gardens and build houses and to establish their families there in that foreign land. And so there in Babylon, in the east, you have a Jewish community. In fact, in Jewish studies, there is, there are, there's what's called the Babylonian Talmud and that originated from that part of the world by Jewish scholars. So we know that there were Jews that were over in that area, and it would, it would help to explain why there would be those from the east that would be, have any remote interest in the king of the Jews. Why would there be those that were being in this other country worshiping some other god, potentially, and, and yet be interested in king of the Jews? In Greek literature, magi, which is the Greek word here for wise men, translated wise men, refers to people from that part of the world, Babylonia, Parth. Parthia. Therefore, Christians of the early centuries of the church believe these men came from the region of the east over there. But there's another option, and that is that they came from Arabia. Arabia. Because you see, for those living in Israel, even to this day, when you talk about the east, what that references is over the Jordan River. You go over the Jordan River, and if you need to look at the map in your back of your Bible, you can. Picture the nation of Israel, and you have the Jordan River on the east side of the nation of Israel, and simply on that, uh, over to that side is the east, and everything beyond that goes out into the desert, and the deserts of Jordan, and uh, present-day Jordan, and Saudi Arabia. In support of this theory uh, that these men came from Arabia is that the earliest commentary on Jesus' birth is from Justin Martyr, from AD 160, and he has a dialogue with a Jew named Trypho, and Justin, being a Palestinian Christian, he's living in Palestine, in Israel, and he notes in five different places that the Magi came from Arabia, and he doesn't have to support his claim, he simply makes the claim, and it seems undisputed. And another point I found, and this is just of of curiosity, that I found interesting, a British scholar named E.F.F. Bishop in the early 1900s found a Bedouin tribe in Jordan with a name that means those who study or follow the planets. And they, they, when asked why their, their, the name of their tribe was that, they claimed that their ancestors had studied the stars and planets and had traveled west to pay homage to the prophet Jesus when he was born. So there seems to be good claims to say that they were either came from the Far East in, in Persia or whether they came from the more Near East in Arabia. And the text, frankly, doesn't give us enough indications to know exactly where they came, but we know that they came from the East. They did have to cross the Jordan at some point to get to Israel. They came saying, where is he who is born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. And so from this, we gather that they were those who studied the stars closely. They looked to the night sky to see what it offered to them in terms of knowledge. And there was a popular belief that when a new star arose and popped in the night sky, that it it gave indication that an important person was born. A significant person had simply Uh, been born. And so, best we can tell from this is that the Magi saw some astrological body in the night sky. It attracted their attention. Some scholars have tried to explain this by saying that there was a comet or some sort of uh, other astrological event. But unlike normal stars, unlike normal uh, things that we see today, this star moved very uh, differently. In fact, verse 9 tells us that they went on their way after leaving Jerusalem, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. And this is why you see depictions, in fact, right behind me, of a star right over the place where the baby was born. Because the wise men saw the star move and come to rest, it says. That is not a normal star that is particularly resting over a particular building. And so, this is a supernatural object. This is a supernatural event that is taking place. 
In fact, it's so supernatural, and in this narrative of Jesus' birth that some scholars uh, have suggested that it was actually an angel that went before and led the wise men on their journey, and they simply saw it as a gleaming star. This narrative going back into chapter 1 and through into chapter 2 is filled with angels, angels who arrive to people and direct them on their way. And so here, this star very well may be an angel leading the magi on their way as well. We don't know for certain. What we do know is that there's a heaven-sent sign, a star, they, they claim, and the wise men pick up on it. They see this star and they begin to study. What could this star mean? If they had familiarity with the Jewish scriptures, they probably were drawn to the prophecy of Balaam. And I'm going to invite you to turn there in Numbers chapter 24. Numbers chapter 24. Keep your finger in Matthew so we can jump back here, but Numbers chapter 24. I know you're all familiar with Numbers, particularly Numbers 24, right? Just kidding. Uh, We know Balaam is the false prophet who was used of God to speak truth. He was hired by a pagan king to pronounce curses on Israel, and he decides to go, and you remember it was his donkey that uh, sees an angel and tries to steer out of the way, and it's Balaam's donkey that gets whipped several times because he presses Balaam's leg against the wall because he doesn't want to get Balaam killed by this angel that's standing there with a sword. And Balaam says, why? And the donkey finally says, why do you keep hitting me? I'm trying to keep you, protect you from this angel. So the, the, Balaam had the talking donkey. But here, he's, he's hired by this pagan king to curse Israel, and he goes to open his mouth, and the Spirit of God controls his tongue, and all he can do is actually bless. And the pagan king goes, look at him and go, Fooey, I hired you to curse, and every time you open your mouth, you just keep blessing. Well, this is uh, one of his uh, oracles, as it's called, or one of his prophecies that end up coming out of his mouth. Here in Numbers chapter 24, uh, look in verse 15. This is his final prophecy. It says, And he took up his discourse and said, The oracle of Balaam, the son of Beor, the oracle of the man whose eye is opened, the oracle of him, who hears the words of God and knows the knowledge of the Most High, who sees the vision of the Almighty, falling down with his eyes uncovered. Now look at this, verse 17. I see him now, but not now. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel, and it shall crush the forehead of Moab and break down all the sons of Sheth. Edom shall be dispossessed. Ser also his enemies shall be dispossessed. Israel is doing valiantly. And one from Jacob shall exercise dominion and destroy the survivors of cities. Here in this prophecy, Balaam speaks about what will happen to Israel in the latter days. Verse 14, he says, "Uh, Come, I will let you know what this people, Israel, will do to your people in the latter days. He's speaking about a future prophecy. And these words here, as we saw particularly in verse 17, are surrounding a man. A man. A, uh, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. And look how he describes it. A star shall come out of Jacob. But what else do we know about this star? Is that there's a scepter, which is a clear sign and illustration of kingship. This man will be a king. And Balaam speaks of this king defeating his enemies. Defeating his enemies, particularly using language that harkens back to Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, in which Genesis 3.15 says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This is the earliest mention of the gospel when right after Adam and Eve sinned, this promise was given that there would be one, a seed, the offspring of a woman who would defeat the offspring of the serpent, Satan. Even though The serpent shall bruise the heel of this offspring. 
This offspring of woman will bruise the head or crush the head of this offspring of the serpent. There will be ultimate victory from the seed of the woman, from the offspring of the woman. And this is showing this cosmic battle, this great play throughout the Old Testament scriptures of those who are on God's side and those who are on Satan's side, those who are the offspring of the woman and those who are the offspring of the serpent, and there's clashes all the way down through God's side, God's people, and those who are on the side of the serpent seeking to crush and destroy and attack God's people. That's exactly what's happening in Numbers. The, The offspring of the serpent Moab is seeking to crush and destroy and curse Israel, God's people. And yet, here, Balaam prophesies that there will be one, a star rising out of Jacob, who will have a scepter in his hand, and he will crush the forehead of Moab, a foot down upon head, and reminiscent of bruising the head, of crushing the head from Genesis 3.15. And so this great showdown continues on down through biblical history. This is what we see throughout the Old Testament and into the New. This great showdown between the offspring of the woman and the offspring of the serpent. And here in Numbers 24, it's the star of Jacob who will ultimately crush the forehead of Moab, the seed of the serpent. Now, if these wise men had access to this Old Testament text they may have put all these pieces together. They may have seen the star and connected it with one rising out of Jacob. And they may have been drawn to to see that that we need to go see this newborn king, this star that's risen out of Israel, the star that's risen out of Jacob. And so they, they plan a great expedition. They plan a great trip. And they travel to Beth, or, uh, to Jerusalem, rather. You can turn back to Matthew chapter 2. They're following the star, gets them as far as Jerusalem. Now, you can't fault them for this, right? If they put together uh, from an elusive text such as we just saw that there's a star rising out of Jacob, it's coming from Israel, and they're thinking, well, let's go to the capital of Israel, and we should go to the palace in Israel, and I would assume that if a king's born, that's probably where the king's going to be, is going to be in the palace, because that's where kings typically are born. They arrive in Jerusalem, I would imagine, with some fanfare. This great entourage from the east is coming into Jerusalem. And they attract attention. They probably are asking around. They have strange animals, strange outfits. And Jerusalem is abuzz with the arrival of this group. Again, they go to the palace, they go to the king, they go in, and they do not meet a new king. Instead, they simply find an old one, this old king named King Herod the Great. Now, when they come into town announcing that they are there to worship the newborn king, it troubles Herod and thus all of Jerusalem with him. And so Herod then calls the Jewish experts of the scriptures to answer a crucial question for him. He, it says he assembled all the chief priests and the scribes of the people. I can only imagine the commotion Herod created with this request. You see, Herod the Great was not known as a devout or religious man. Yes, he was king over the Jews, but they knew that he wasn't a true Jew. His blood was not truly Jew, Jewish, and his allegiances was not truly in following the Torah, in following the law. And so this irreligious man calls all the Jewish leaders and scribes and chief priests to be assembled was probably, I would imagine, a rare occurrence. Like, wait, Herod the Great wants to ask us a theological question? Since when has he ever cared about theological questions? And so they all, there's this big hubbub as all of them tap on each other's shoulder and say, hey, the king wants to hear us. Oh, okay, let's go. No, they all head into the chamber of the king and it's, They all assemble, and they're all in their great robes and pageantry, and and we are the the superior biblical scholars in Israel. And it goes quiet, and they go, what do you want, O king? And he asks them a question that they all learned in kindergarten. 
And they all looking around, that's all? Where will the Messiah be born? This is a question that they all would have learned to answer as a child. Bethlehem, they said, because of Micah the prophet. Um, and they all knew, they were very familiar with this prophecy. The prophet Micah had prophesied eight centuries earlier, eight centuries earlier, that Jesus the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. And these scholars knew that's where the Messiah would be born. And it's here, as these scholars give this answer, that we see the first of three responses in this passage to the arrival of Christ the King. And that is the response of these Jewish leaders, which is apathy and total indifference. Apathy and total indifference. They lack all interest in the message of the Magi. These people come in and announce that there has been one born king of the Jews and they don't even care. They don't send anybody with the, the wise men to go check it out. They don't get excited. They don't raise an eyebrow at the fact that there has been one born king of the Jews, the one that the whole Old Testament has been anticipating, and they are supposed to be above all looking for this Messiah. They're to be teaching Israel to be looking for this Messiah. This is where their whole Old Testament scriptures are pointing towards, this one that God would send. And yet they don't give a rip. They don't care at all. And John Calvin calls it base sluggishness. They're just oozing there in their own self-righteousness and don't care. They knew the prophecies better than anybody. They knew that he was going to come. They knew that he was the promised one. They studied the scriptures more than anyone. And therefore, the scriptures should have shaped their hearts. But here we see their true colors. They weren't swept up with excitement for the, of this news. They weren't even curious enough to go with the Magi or even ask the Magi to come back and tell them. Herod, who has other plans, at least asked for them to return and announce something. But these religious leaders don't even do that. Now, they may have dismissed the announcement because it came from these pagans from the east and not from within their own midst. You know, surely God wouldn't announce the arrival of the Jewish Messiah to magi in the east. I mean, they would certainly come to one of us who have the great knowledge and all the, all the status they were the custodians of the law. I mean, and you can just imagine, they're just going, who are these guys anyway? They claim to know that the Messiah, the Jewish Messiah, the King of the Jews has been born, and yet they don't even know the most basic facts. They don't even know he's born in Bethlehem. I mean, how can they really claim to know the truth here? And we see here the fulfillment of what the Apostle John says in John chapter 1, verse 11, he came to his own and his own people did not receive him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. Friends, apathy towards Christ has been a problem which has plagued humanity ever since the first century. People are too preoccupied with their lives. They're too interested in other things. They think they're too important concern themselves with spiritual matters. And so the concerns of this world and their own pride and their own careers and their own lives that they've built up are too important for them. And it dominates their hearts. And so Christ comes before them and they turn a blind eye and look away. The apathetic hear about Jesus at Christmas and they say, oh, that's nice. That's a nice little story. Makes a nice little play. They'll stop to hear a Christmas message or watch a Christmas play, but they don't stop to consider their own hearts and what accepting or rejecting Christ will mean for their eternity. You see, those indifferent to Christ that are apathetic towards Christ may actually be interested in religion. They may uh, like the idea of studying the Bible. They may long for traditional morality in this country, but they don't truly love Christ. It's possible to be interested in, in religion, but not interested in Christ. 
It's possible to be excited about religious things and yet apathetic toward the Savior. They're not bowing to the King of Kings. But there are those who are apathetic who don't really care for religion at all. And we see this all around us, do we not? They're simply in love with this world and all that it has to offer. They think life is found in pursuing the pleasure of their flesh. They've gotten along just fine with Jesus. Why do they need him now? My life is good. Let me tell you, to be apathetic toward a baby lying in a manger might seem easy and of no consequence today, but it will have damning consequences. These religious leaders easily brushed off the wise men when they came into town. They moved on with their lives. They answered the question. They saw this, well, these kind of crazy guys come from the east. They talk about this thing, king of the Jews. The magi leave. They never hear from them again. They never see a thing. And they move on to their lives thinking that they are in the right. But yet their response to Jesus determined their fate for all of eternity. Because here's the deal. To be apathetic towards Jesus, (laughs) to be apathetic towards Jesus is actually to be opposed to him is actually to be opposed to him. There's no middle ground. You either believe in Jesus or you don't. You either accept him or you don't. You either bow to him or you don't. There's no neutral space. There's no gray area between those two points. Jesus said, whoever is not with me is against me, Matthew 12, 30. So here we see in the first response in this text to Jesus is apathy or indifference. The second response we see is from the wise men and that is adoration, adoration. We see it in verses 12, 7 through 12. It says, Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. And after listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that had They had seen when it rose, went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. Herod learns that the Messiah is to be born in Bethlehem and he works to employ the Magi as his secret agents. He develops a ploy where he says he wants to worship the child and just like the wise men do. The wise men believe the king's sincerity, they're innocent in it and they set off towards Bethlehem, which is only about four or five miles south of Jerusalem. Verse 9 seems to indicate that the star had disappeared and they got to Jerusalem and then as they left again, it appeared once more. It was there to lead them the rest of the way. They were taken not just to the town of Bethlehem, but to the very residence where the Christ child and his parents were staying. Now notice their joy in verse 10. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. I mean, Matthew can't state this any more strongly, exceedingly with great joy. They weren't just a little excited. They had never been this excited. These men traveled a great distance to find this newborn king. Who knows where they came from, but as they saw the star, they began to make plans. They begin to pack their animals. They travel days and days. They get there. They've been waiting and anticipating for this. And now it comes and arrives right over the residence. Their joy made the last few miles go quickly. And finally, they enter the house and find the baby with his mother. Now, it's common with this passage is considered to conclude that some significant time has passed, right? Either you get the nativity scene where shepherds and wise men all arrive at the same time and it's one big party in uh, in the stable, or uh, the more often modern correction is that Jesus is quite a bit older, maybe a toddler, and it's been maybe even a couple years since Jesus has been born when the wise men arrive. And, uh, but I don't believe that's the case. I believe Jesus is still a baby at this point. Now, the the point that Jesus is often older at this point is drawn from the fact that um, in verse 11, it says, and going into the house, they saw the child with his mother. And they say, Jesus was born in a manger, Luke 2, and here they're entering a house. So therefore, these seem to be, you know, this, a change of residence. There was a manger in a stable, and now he's in a house. And so there uh, seems to be some change. But I simply will reference my sermon last year on Luke 2, verse 7. 
And I believe that Jesus was actually born in a home. In those peasant homes, they had mangers in those homes because the animals would come in at night to be protected and to be kept safe. And because there was no room in the guest room, which is what that Greek word means, not just an inn, but a guest room, they had to stay in the main room of the house. And so there in the main room of the house, Mary has her child, and the only place there in that main room is a manger, which is carved into the bedrock there of the home. And so I believe that the home that Jesus was born in is the same home that the Magi visit Jesus in. And when we think about the timeline of when Jesus was born, when Herod dies, because I don't believe there's enough time, there's not two years that we can give for Jesus to grow up. And so I believe that when the Magi walked into the door in verse 11, they saw a baby in Mary's arms, not a toddler in Mary's lap. And when we see the child, when they see this child, look at it, verse 11, and they fell down and worshiped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And here we see the second response to the birth of Christ the King. And that is adoration. First, we saw apathy. Here, we see adoration. These wise men do not come to simply gaze upon the child, to simply observe the child. They don't come simply as delivery men to simply drop the gifts and to go. They came to worship, which is what they had told Herod back in verse 2. We have come to worship him. They had set their hearts not just on witnessing and seeing this Christ child, but of bowing before him and of worshiping him. They bow before him in a a clear sign that they saw this baby as their superior. But not only did they bow in homage, but they also brought gifts. Gifts that were found for royalty, gold, the universal valuable metal, that we see throughout time and all around the world that holds its value, that is valued by mankind, that kings amass. Frankincense and myrrh, two costly spices that would have been fit for a king. And in all of this, we see something remarkable, that while the Jewish people, the people of Christ, do not accept Christ, these Gentiles bow down and worship the Jewish king. The Jewish elite are ignoring him. The Gentile, the Gentile magi are bowing before him. And this points that Christ will not simply be the king of the Jews alone, but will be king of the whole world. He will be king over all peoples. He will rule over every single people on this earth. All peoples will look to him for salvation. And these wise men seem to have understood that. No matter what their religion was back home that they grew up with, in their land they were now confessing Jesus as Lord and King. Adoration like this is not just a sign of kindness, not just a sign of niceness. He wasn't just being, they weren't just being kind to this little little baby and to the family. They had faith. It was a sign of faith. They believed in who Jesus was and they offered their allegiance to him. They worshiped him as the sovereign, mighty king that he was. At that moment, it took faith to see the kingship of Jesus. I mean, think about it. These wise men had just left the palace. They just left the mightiest and wisest of the nation of Israel and they were turning a blind eye to this baby in this peasant home at this time. The great ones of the land took no notice. It was unpopular to go visit this little house. And yet these wise men believed in the revelation they had received, that this truly was the king, even though it didn't look like it. They knew that this was the king, and they were going to base their lives upon what they had received. And folks, it's the same for us today. We, in order to see Jesus Christ as king, we must see with eyes of faith. There's no tourist spot where you can travel today. You can't get on a plane and go see Jesus upon a throne somewhere on this planet. One day you will be able to. He will come to reign physically upon this earth. But right now that's not the case. We must see with eyes of faith. He's absent in body now. But we must follow these magi and believe with eyes of faith and adore Christ the King. In faith we must bow before him and confess him as Lord. 
And the Bible says that if we confess him as Lord and believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead, then we will be saved. Salvation is found in embracing this king and adoring this king. This king, unlike every other king of history, does not demand his subjects to give their lives to uphold his own glory. Rather, this king laid down his own life and laid aside his glory in order to save the lives of his subjects. Those who adore Jesus like these wise men will worship Jesus both personally and individually and corporately. Today, those who adore Jesus have surrendered their lives privately and they publicly participate with the church in praising his name. You can't have someone say, I adore Jesus, but I don't like the church. Because see, the church is the bride of Christ that he bought and paid for on the cross. And to, to publicly identify with Jesus is to also publicly identify with the church and to sing praises corporately, to worship him together with God's people. Nor is adoring Jesus simply showing up at church and giving lip service and participating in the songs and all the public outward manifestations of worship, but inwardly, privately, personally, there's no surrender. That is not adoration of Jesus either. To simply participate in the public outward means of worship and yet there's no change of allegiance. There's no personal bowing before Jesus. There's no confession that Jesus is Lord and he dictates your lives. He dictates the agenda for how we will live. That is what adoration looks like. So we've seen how the religious leaders responded to the birth of Christ with apathy. We've seen how the, the wise men responded with adoration. And let's finish up this morning by looking at how Herod responded with animosity. Animosity in verses 13 through 18. Look at verse 12. It says, And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. And now they had departed. Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. Verse 16, then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Here is Herod the Great. Herod the Great was great, uh, called the Great because of all that he did. He built many different things in and throughout Israel. Uh, particularly, he built Herod's temple, which was a tremendous upgrade from the temple built by Zerubbabel and the returned exiles. He was Idumean by birth. He was not a true Jew, as I mentioned earlier. He was installed as the king of the Jews in 37 BC, and he was a vassal king, ultimately serving Rome. But he was a man who was obsessed with his, the furtherance of his name and his glory. And unfortunately, many people in his own family got in the way of his own glory. You see, when Herod died, by the time he had died, he had killed several of his wives, his brother-in-law, and even several of his sons all because they were seen as competitors to his throne. This man was a murderous maniac. On top of this, he was disliked by the Jews. In fact, uh, they knew he wasn't a full-blooded Jew, and they, he didn't have the true, the true right to rule over them. And so, you can imagine the concern when these magi come into town, and they say, where's the one who has been born king of the Jews? Not installed as king of the Jews, but born king of the Jews. And Herod goes, uh-oh, there's someone born king? Because I wasn't really born king of the Jews. I was just kind of put here. So that means there's someone who is a threat to my kingship. And that's why verse 3, it says that Herod was troubled in all Jerusalem with him. He's greatly disturbed. There's inner turmoil. Jerusalem connected with the monarchy is also concerned. Wait, there's another monarch? Wait, there's another king has been born? Does that mean our king, 
Our, our way of life is going to be changed. Herod, always looking to crush the competition, devises a plan to defeat this child. He does it without raising the eyebrows of any of these foreign magi. He pulls them aside. He tells them his little secret plan. He says, listen, you know, I really want to worship him too. Could you just go down there and then, you know, come back and tell me because I want to worship him as well. And he tries to put on this angel face. And the magi are naive. These, they're wise men, but they're not wise enough to see and to know who Herod the Great is. And so they say, oh, sure, we'd love to. So they leave, they go down, Herod sends them, oh, I'm sending you as my emissaries to go check this out. But it was, God is ultimately in control of this scene, and he warns the wise men to go a different way, and they do. Not only does he warn the wise men to go a different way, he warns the holy family, Mary, Joseph, and the child, to go into Egypt for a time. And they are protected there until Herod the Great dies. But as the family is fleeing, we then have the sad events of verses 16 through 18. As we mentioned earlier, Herod had no qualms about killing anybody, even those who were close to him, wives, sons. And so it's no wonder that the murderer would use his power to snuff out, or try to snuff out, the heaven-sent Messiah. And here, I remind you of that great cosmic battle that's been going on since the beginning. The great war between the offspring of the serpent and the offspring of the woman that would ultimately play out in the person of Jesus who would be the star out of Jacob and the scepter out of Israel. The one who would be that great offspring of the woman who would defeat Satan and defeat the enemy. Here, it plays out again. You see, Satan has tried this. He, this has been in his playbook before. You'll remember the book of Exodus, the nation of Israel, and they have grown very numerous, and the Pharaoh doesn't like it. And so he looks to snuff out the messianic line there in Egypt by telling the Hebrew midwives to kill all the male children. Of course, they disobey, and that messianic line continues. But here, Satan pulls from that same playbook again and uses a monarch to try to kill a group of Israeli children to try to snuff out the messianic line. And again, he doesn't succeed because God is the one ultimately in control. But here we see that Herod wanted nothing to do with Christ. Even being aware that of what the word of God had said about the Messiah. He asked the scholars, and they said he would be born in Bethlehem. These, these, uh, these men go there. He, he is not moved by the word of God at all. He's entirely opposed to the true king of Israel because he's opposed to God. You see, to oppose God's son is to oppose God himself. The animosity that Herod exhibited in killing the baby boys of Bethlehem was directed at the Lord and at his son, Jesus Christ. Herod revealed that he wanted to be Lord of his own life. He wanted his own desires to reign supreme. He wanted to live life his own way rather than submit to God's way. And Herod here represents all those who live their lives apart from Jesus. Of course, everyone on this planet is not murdering their family members like Herod. But all people are born into sin and naturally resist God's sovereignty over their lives. You can try to ignore this, Jesus, but in the end, you will see that you've chosen to reject him. We each have the same problem Herod had. We have rebellious hearts towards God. We don't want God calling the shots. We want to be in control. But in doing so, people think that they're living free, free from the bonds of, of a God who's, who's telling them how to live, but really they're living with the shackles of sin. The Bible says that, it, it, that if we have not been set free by the Son of God, we live enslaved to sin. This is true of every single person on this planet. And folks, it was this animosity that we see displayed towards Jesus here in the Christmas story that 30, over 30 years later would put him on a cross. The people ultimately don't change their hearts. 
the religious and political leaders would conspire to put the innocent son of God to death. Satan didn't succeed in killing him here, but he will kill him later. But that does not bring defeat. It is through that death that he gains the victory and gives life to all who place their faith in him. So the question for us this morning, we've seen three responses. But the reality is there's only two camps that you can fall into. Either you adore Jesus and fall down and worship him, surrendering your life and the lordship of your life to him and to him alone for the rest of your days. Or you reject him. And that rejection might look like indifference. It might look like apathy. It might look like you don't really care. Or it might look like in bitter hatred towards Jesus. But either way, you're rejecting him. And friends, there's only one path to life. Again, everyone will come face to face with this king. It's either going to be the king who will save you and welcome you into his his fellowship and family, or the king who will judge you and cast you into outer darkness forever. I don't enjoy saying those words, but that is what the scriptures say. That is the fate of all those who reject this king. All those who reject the baby in the manger this Christmas face a fate of death. But the good news today, if you hear nothing else here, that life is offered to all. You just need to come and bow the knees before, before this Christ. Confess your sin. Repent. Turn away from living life your own way and confess Jesus as Lord and find life in his name. This is the king who gives life to all. Do not turn away. Do not pass another Christmas without bowing the knee to the king of kings and the Lord of lords. I pray that we all would find the joy in life in adoring Christ this Christmas season. Let's bow together in prayer. Our Father, we, we certainly want to be among those who see the glory of Christ. Father, we live in a world that wants nothing to, to do with Jesus. They've relegated him to the, the corners of society, the insignificant parts of life. Father, we know the truth. Your word declares the truth. And whether people don't care about the truth or actively oppose the truth, oh God, we know that you are mightier than even those rebellious hearts. We pray that you would break through the unbelief, that you would break through the cynicism, the skepticism, break through the animosity, oh God, and may the light of the gospel pierce into the hearts that are longing for you, longing for life, longing for joy. Father, may salvation come to their hearts this day. We thank you for the gift of your son and we praise you for it. In his name we pray, amen. Folks, you are dismissed. I just say that if there is anything that I've said that prompts questions in your mind, please if you're watching online, contact me. If you're here in person, please come down front. I'd love to speak with you. You are dismissed.